our God and Father, this is a day of great need. Many of us feel the concern and anxiety even over this deep and severe drought we are in. We know that water is an essential part of life. And our, our hearts are disturbed and our worries grow almost on a daily basis because we recognize we don't have the capacity to produce rain or moisture. We don't have the power to make it snow. You are the God who causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. And we pause here at this point in our service to ask that you would have mercy upon our state and surrounding areas that are in such a deep drought. And despite our pride and rebellion, despite the hardness of our heart spiritually, we plead with you to send the rain and the snow that we are dependent upon. But even that physical drought serves as a powerful metaphor that there are deeper needs of a spiritual nature. There's a dryness in this valley. There's a dryness in the hearts and souls of many, some who are here today. It's a dryness that results from a lack of knowing you personally, intimately. It is a a dryness resulting from the lack of the gospel truth. And while there is a great deal of religious talk in our community and even around the world, there is comparatively little Christ-exalting, sin-exposing, hope-giving, life-transforming word. And so this day we pray that the powerful evangel would move through this valley through our hearts and minds, searching the secret places that we keep hidden, penetrating the deepest recesses of soul and spirit, convicting us of our sin, and at the same time convincing us that Jesus Christ is not only the only hope, he is the great hope, the perfect hope, the true hope for salvation. Oh God, issue the effective, powerful, sovereign gospel call today, here and abroad. And with the sweet psalmist, we earnestly seek you. Our, our souls are thirsty for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we bless your name on this day and we will bless you as long as we live. And in your name we will lift up our hands because your steadfast love is better than life. And we desire to behold your power and glory. So give us help. Now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans? It's a New Testament book, and if you do not have a copy of the Bible for yourself, you're not only welcome to use one of the copies in the seat rack in front of you, but you're welcome to take that with you and make it your very own today. Write your name in the front and uh, let that be a, a gift to you today. This word is the word of God And we have been studying for several months now Paul's letter to the Roman saints in first century Rome. And we've made our way uh, into the middle of chapter 8. And we're going to go there in just a moment and resume our study. 
In an article that Tim Keller wrote and was published in The Atlantic not too long ago, uh, he's a pastor who has served, lived and served in New York City for many decades now and uh, was actually recently diagnosed with a very serious form of, of cancer. And even in response to receiving that news, he wrote this article just sharing some of the lessons that God was teaching him, and some of them actually had to do with physical suffering. It's a question that many of us have. And he poses a really powerful uh, question for us to consider, and he does it through the, the uh, writings of a philosopher, Charles Taylor. But first, Keller sets it up in this way. Why is it that people in prosperous modern society seem to struggle so much with the existence of evil, suffering, and death? In his book, A Secular Age, the philosopher Charles Taylor wrote that while humans have always struggled with the ways and justice of God, until quite recently, no one had concluded that suffering made the existence of God implausible for millennia. People held a strong belief in their own inadequacy or sinfulness and did not hold the modern assumption that we all deserve a comfortable life. And let me pause right there and, and just ask you to consider, is that where you are? What do you think about suffering? How do you process it? And we might say, what is your perspective on it? And then Taylor goes on to argue, according to Pastor Tim Keller, we have become so confident in our powers of logic that if we cannot imagine any good reason that suffering exists, we assume there can't be one. That stopped me in my thought tracks. And I had to back up a little bit and, and ask even of my own soul, is that where I am? Because I can't make sense of my suffering or, or the suffering of a loved one or friends that I have, or even what's taking place globally, that, that somehow I either assign blame to God or even eliminate him as having any part in it. That suffering is, is just an inherent evil that couldn't possibly be turned at some point or used by a divine being like the God of the Bible to accomplish a good purpose. Many of us have bought into the notion that we deserve a comfortable life and when we do not experience the lifestyle we believe we should be ours, we begin to look for someone to hold responsible. And we want to assign blame and sometimes we look back on our past and say, well, it's that individual or that family member or that person who did me harm or it's the corrupt society we're a part of or um, even in, in this day, there's a sense of it's the privileged elite who suppress you know, all the rest of the ordinary or even oppressed people. Or sometimes we even turn the blame to God. God, this is your fault. And I'll readily confess that I struggle, as I'm sure all of you do, to understand the reasons for suffering. Like, what is going on, God? It makes sense to me that it would happen to bad people, right? I mean, karma makes logical sense to me. You do bad things, bad things are gonna come back to you. You do good things, good things will come back to you. But that's not really the way life operates, is it? Because all of you, like I, can think of, from the human perspective, good people who had cataclysmic events thrust upon them. 
And I want to be careful that I don't run down that path that, well, clearly they were hiding something because bad stuff doesn't happen to good people. But it's not just the question of what about ordinary people and truthfully good people who suffer evil. What about Jesus himself? That's the ultimate suffering. I'm helped by the thoughts of uh, the Bible scholar and commentator Doug Moo, who in his study of Romans has written this observation, a Christian views the suffering of his life in a larger world-transcending context that, while not alleviating its present intensity, transcends it with the confident expectation that suffering is not the final word. Do you see that last little phrase? That's the difference between a, a biblical gospel worldview and so many others that are, are working really hard to try to make sense of suffering. God never minimizes suffering. He doesn't actually you know, wash his hands of it like, that's ah, not my fault. You know, find somebody else to blame. No, he actually walks us into a, a face-to-face confrontation with suffering, gives us his perspective on it so that we're not just abandoned to its mean, seeming meaninglessness, but rather he shows us how to think about our suffering, how to walk through it with a view that there really is a different final word. And so your suffering today, whether it be of an intensely personal nature or whether it just be more of a global concern for the way planet Earth seems to be just coming apart right now, there is a hope-filled, eternally unchanging word for us. Now, your Bibles are open to Romans 8. Will you find verse 18 with me, please? This is where we left off uh, several weeks ago. And we'll resume our study here. Now, in verse 17, Paul had actually made a, a comment that, that he's going to fully explain. He, he actually opened the door to followers of Christ suffering with Jesus, he says, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's a little scary to us, but let's, let's before we you know, abandon ship, as it were, and say, I didn't sign up for suffering, let's see what the Lord says through Paul for us. Here it goes. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption or liberation of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I know the paragraph goes on, but there's just, we we need to pause right there. And and some of you are saying, but wait, 
verse 28 and 29 and following. This is some of my favorite stuff. I know, we'll, we'll get there. We just can't cover it all today. I'm already staring at that clock in the back of the room saying, oh, I hate time uh, as it races. So, Cody, would you just push that, that minute hand back about 15 minutes? That, that'll free my spirit to preach, even, even with the delusion, you know, that we're not as far along as we are. What is God's perspective on suffering? Because that's what really matters for us. We can, we can see, seek out gurus and other wise people and say, hey, could you help me figure out why I'm suffering or why our world is suffering? But you know, at the end of the day, we need God's perspective. And that's where Paul begins by saying, I consider something. That is, I, I'm holding this view. I have formed a particular opinion. And it's formed not just out of his own experience or his own wisdom, but rather it's informed by God's truth. And here it comes. What does he hold this uh, firm opinion about? Well, that the sufferings of this present time, and let's pause there and make sure we understand that he's using a big broad term that can refer to pain or distress due to any kind of adversity. And as one author notes, it encompasses the whole gamut of suffering, including such things as illness, bereavement, hunger, financial reverses, and death itself. There's not one of you untouched by suffering as Paul refers to it here. Oh, it may not be as intensely active in your life at this moment, but there's stuff in your past, whether it be the death of a loved one, whether it be an illness, whether it be financial difficulty, that you could look back on and say, that was a particularly difficult low time. Yes, I suffered. Some of you are in it right now. And you look at that little list that's just suggestive and say, yep, I think I can check a box by every single one of those. Well, that's unfortunately the way life on planet Earth runs at this particular moment. And we just can't seem to escape it. Even when you reach those moments where things seem to flatten out a little bit, you, you, those of you who've lived long enough know that it's, it's short-lived, isn't it? Friday, Kristen and I found out that um, a friend we've known for many years who was a part of our church in South Carolina and just, uh, she's Kristen's age, lost the, the battle to cancer, left two young girls behind. Her husband had already passed away of cancer a number of years ago. I did his funeral. We told, our, uh, we told some of our family and friends, and it's just one of those tragedies that you, you saw coming, you couldn't stop it. We also received news that another older man in our church um, just died unexpectedly. He was having his car serviced, went into the restroom, never came out. Somebody went in to look for him, and he was dead on the floor. Those families, the friends connected there, they suffer. Some of you have said goodbye to loved ones in recent days. So whether it be something that you know in your head or heart will be remedied in short order, it's, it's short-term pain, or something that really does alter the way you know life and experience it, the, all of that is included under this heading of suffering. But look at what Paul actually goes on to say. All of that suffering, as real, as painful, as difficult as it is, is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, God never minimizes our suffering. As a matter of fact, we're gonna look at just a moment at, a, at another parallel passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We read from some of that earlier as we were worshiping God through our, our giving. Paul is not trying to minimize suffering. God's not trying to minimize suffering, but he's saying if, if you actually put 
your present suffering in a scale and we would drop the future glories that are promised to the followers of Jesus Christ, you know what would happen? It wouldn't just like start tipping toward glory. I mean, the weight of coming glory would be so great, it would smash to the countertop if I could uh, portray it in that way and, and maybe even eject those present sufferings because the weight on this side is so massive. Now the problem is, we've never seen, heard, tasted, touched any of those glories. So all we can do is believe the word of God, to believe the promise of this powerful, good, sovereign, gracious king who says, I'm telling you glory is coming. Not to minimize suffering, he never says to us, to paraphrase someone I know and love and respect highly, suck it up, buttercup. He never comes to us in those moments of suffering with a word like that. And we're gonna see something really powerful in a moment about how the God of eternity does in fact enter into our suffering. But this is particularly stunning that, that Paul actually says to people like us who are putting our faith in Jesus Christ, glory is coming. It's particularly stunning because if you can remember this far back to Romans 3 verse 23, Paul had stated that our pre-conversion state, when we were still slaves to sin, that we all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We might have wanted it, but we weren't even getting close to approach it. And now he says, it's yours. Future time, it's not here yet, but it is coming. Suffering, this, this is the powerful truth. Um, oops, I, I did skip over that little definition of glory. And I thought this was very helpful in one of the uh, commentaries I looked at this week. That exalted state of blissful perfection, which is the portion of those who dwell with God in heaven. It's not glory that as you would define it or I might think of it. It's actually glory as God has created it and defined it. Um, what, a, what a state that will be. But, but here's the powerful truth concerning God's perspective on your present suffering and mine. Suffering neither defines our present existence as believers, nor does it serve as our final destiny. I hope that is help and encouragement for some of you who are in the throes of chronic illness. Because you, you continue to visit your doctor or see the re test results and reports and, and, and you're happy maybe that you find a new plateau but in comparison to where you used to live life, what a decline it is. Would God just leave you there? Well, here's his promise. No, he won't. Or some of you have experienced such severe blows whether it be the sin of another person or just a, a, a misfortune as we might describe it, but it has left you in a place where you say, you know, I'll recover some sense of my financial health or I'll, I'll come out of this. I'm, I'm not gonna die, but it feels like I've really come close. And, and as far as you can see into the future, you, you don't really see a way that you could get back to where you were living life. It, is that suffering just going to define who you are and what you do the rest of your days? Well, not according to this gospel truth. Glory is the predetermined and divinely purposed destiny of every believer. Glory's not waiting for the super saints, you know, the people who somehow get their act together enough to just live out all their days in, in some state of perfection and worthiness where God's like, oh, I got a special place for you. Sorry to the rest of you. You got close, but you missed it. No, he's so kind and good and powerful that he actually destines 
or predestines, as we'll come to next week, this ultimate destiny for every believer. I referred just a moment ago to a passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Paul says there, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Can I throw out one other little point of meditation for you? Again, he's not minimizing your suffering and mine at this moment, but in comparison to the weight of glory that's coming, how does he describe it? First of all, to the light. Again, in the balance of God's justice, we might say. On his scales, what you and I experiencing, are experiencing right now in comparison to what's coming is light. And the second word he uses is it's momentary. That is, in his kindness, it's actually limited in its duration. Now, that's a little consolation when you haven't slept for seven nights in a row and you're so exhausted and so frazzled that you think, I am gonna lose my mind. I know I'm losing my health. I actually feel crazy. Suicide seems to be like a legitimate alternative to consider right now. And I'm not minimizing this at all. When you're in the middle of that kind of intense suffering, the last two things you would think about are it's light and it's momentary. But again, this is where we need God's truth to inform us and give us perspective. Because what is your life and what is mine? Jesus said, it's a vapor. It's a vapor. And those of you who are older now, uh, you really get it because you look back on time and like, wow, where did the last 25, 30, 50, 70 years go? You're starting to tune into what Jesus meant when he said, "Your, your life is a vapor. It's like the breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold morning. It's there and then it's gone. Well, that's the duration of your suffering. But an eternal weight of glory, glory that never ends, glory that it's su- that's of such weight and substance, it, it actually will kind of swallow up the pain of the past. That's his promise to those who trust him. Glory is the predetermined and divinely purposed destiny of every believer. Now, while present suffering is not the defining reality of our lives, God's salvation purpose is the defining reality, um, and the the coming glory is a great uh, hope to us, as we're going to see in a moment. We we still suffer. So let's return to the passage. I want you to look at verses 19 through 22 now, and, and watch what Paul does. This is a little bit of an unexpected turn. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons. And he's going to talk about two things here. He's going to talk about the the groaning of creation itself. But woven into these verses is this powerful truth that creation itself exists with a hope of something unfolding. Eager longing. Eager longing is mingled with a sense of present futility. Look at verse 19 more closely. The creation waits with eager longing. There it is. and, And that is a... There, there's a visual image that emerges if you, if you study out that little phrase, eager longing. The visual image is of a person who, who's craning his or her neck to see what is coming. Like there's stuff in the way and I, I can't quite get a clear vision so I'm on my tiptoes and straining and I wanna see. Well, that's that eager longing that creation lives with right now. And what are they craning their necks to see? Well, Paul says the revealing of the sons of God. What? I have a bird feeder in my backyard. It was a gift a number of years ago, and it's in disrepair, and it's on limited time, and I've sanded it down and repainted the top and tried to clean it up, you know, several seasons through the years, but, um, you know, it's holding up all right. 
but I love to see what kind of birds show up in the morning. And right now it's mostly sparrows. Uh, doves come by. Uh, there was one of those Utah Blue Jays. That's probably not the scientific name, but um, it, it was there a couple of days ago, and, and that was really cool. And sometimes the, the quail run through the yard. They're not on the feeder itself, but they get what falls out. And I, I just have this delight in seeing what shows up at the feeder. And early in the morning, I'm a morning person, I also love to just hear them sing. But based on this passage, what God is saying about creation, that would include little insignificant sparrows and songbirds that arrive at your bird feeder and mine in the morning, is that even their song is tempered by an expectation of freedom. As if their song itself is woven into that. And if you listen to it by faith with Romans 8 informing that bird song tomorrow morning, you're actually gonna hear an echo of groaning. I don't know how all this works, but I'm gonna believe the word of Almighty God who created all that is. And as Paul says, he's the one who actually subjected creation to futility. That word futility has the idea of, of frustration. It just doesn't produce all that it was designed to produce. The whole universe groans. Because thousands of years ago, the first man, Adam, rebelled against God, and as God came and pronounced the curse, creation itself was subjected to that futility. And Paul goes on to say, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It had no choice but to submit to the sovereign authority of this creator God. But look at this, into verse 20. He subjected it in hope. And what is that hope? Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So think of it this way. So it's not even that my little friends, the sparrows in the backyard, are groaning out their little morning song saying, oh, my life is not the way it ought to be, and I'm waiting for sparrow glory. You know what glory they're waiting for? If I can really personalize it in this way, it's like from the bird feeder, they're, they're looking in through the kitchen window and I'm in there making a cup of coffee or something or getting ready and going, I cannot wait for that guy to receive the full redemption that Jesus purchased with his blood because then the lid's gonna come off. He's gonna be everything that God created and redeemed him to be and we're gonna be everything that God created us to be. We can't even imagine what the new heavens new earth will be. We can't even imagine the glory that God is preparing for us, that he is promising for us. And I believe that Paul has Genesis 3.15 in mind when, when he speaks of this hope of obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You remember, we, we've looked at Genesis 3.15 in, in recent weeks and months, and it's the first gospel, that even though God comes and confronts Adam and Eve for their rebellion, pronounces a curse on the serpent, pronounces a curse on the land, pronounces those dreadful consequences for them as well. In the middle of that, though, he says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is this promised rescuer, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know from the rest of the story in Scripture that the promised one that God was speaking of there is no one less than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he's already died, hasn't he? And he's already risen from the grave. He's already promised that he's preparing a place for his people. Glory is coming. 
So God's hope in our suffering is reflected actually by the created world all around us. Let's look at verses 23 to 25 and see the hope of the believer. Notice the hope of the believer. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And for those of you who are with us for the first time, just go back and read through uh, the early portions of chapter eight because one of the things that Paul has said to God's people is that he has sent his Spirit to dwell in us. So, so Paul's making reference to that again. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. There it is, the, the mingling of our present suffering and groaning uh, that results from that and also our eager hope, our expectation. And what are we hoping for? The adoption of sons, the redemption or liberation of our bodies. Now, I, I wanna go back and just touch on that. Uh, there, there are five key phrases here. Uh, in those three verses, you can look at those, but I want you to look at that picture for a moment this, because the Spirit is described here as the first fruits of our full redemption or liberation. Do you know what first fruits are? We, we, most of us are so far removed from you know, an agricultural society that we're, it's just not a part of our daily conversation, but it should be a part of our, our daily theological conversation. First fruits refers to what, what comes on a fruit tree or a crop, it's the first portion that matures. Uh, I think it was three years ago, not long after we moved here, in that first year uh, we were here, we planted a peach tree. We actually planted three trees, apple tree, cherry tree, peach tree. Only one of those survives to this day. And last year was a very disappointing peach harvest. Did we get three or two? I mean, it was pitiful. Now, they were really good. And it gave me hope, you know, for what might lie ahead. Well, this year, that little tree is, I mean, the branches are practically on the ground. I probably should go prop them up, tie them up, or something like that. And, and you know, I'm trying to do the, the good Utah thing and conserve water, but I'm also trying to, like, give that tree water. And, and so sometimes I'll, I'll place the hose right at the base and just turn, you know, on a little drip and just let it run and saturate that soil. It's so exciting to me to watch those, what were first just blooms, then, you know, turn into this little green bud of a fruit, and now they're starting to swell a little bit. Well, guess what? I went out Friday, and a, one tiny little peach, it's more like a peachoid. It's so small. It had turned pink, I mean, to the color of ripe fruit. And I looked at that thing and said to myself, I can't resist. And so I actually twisted the stem, popped it off. There, there wasn't even one full bite, but when I bit into that little peach oid and tasted the sweetness that had actually matured, I thought to myself, I love peaches, and more are coming. That little peach oid is the first fruit of a bountiful peach harvest that's coming in my backyard. And Paul is saying the Spirit is actually the first fruits. The Spirit who, as we read earlier and a couple of weeks ago, looked at the Spirit who pushes that cry from your soul to heaven, Abba, Father, that Spirit who bears witness with your spirit that you really are the child of God, even though you're waging war with your sin and many days feel like failure, that Spirit that comes alongside you and convicts you of your sin and says you should never have said or thought or done and calls you to repent, that spirit is the first fruit of a full work of redemption and liberation that's coming. And aren't you glad that it's not 
merely, if I can put it that way, the promise of God that says, I know you're suffering now, it's hard, but just wait, good things are coming. No, he's actually sent the spirit of God to dwell in you right now to say, I'm gonna give you just a little taste of glory that's coming. Now, some of you have never tasted even the first fruit of the spirit because up to this point, you've just kind of said, well, you know, religion's for somebody else or, you know, Christianity's not my thing or I'm not really a spiritual kind of person. And I would say, oh, dear friend, you need to taste today and know that the Lord is good. The spirit is the first fruits of our full redemption. And we eagerly await that liberation. Now, the interim stuff, though, um, doesn't make suffering go away, does it? Just because the spirit comes to dwell in you doesn't, you know, presto changeo. My life is perfect. I'm not sick anymore. I'm richer than I ever imagined. And, you know, I have a perfect marriage and perfect kids and, you know, just perfect life. No, the indwelling presence of the spirit doesn't create utopia. But he does give you perspective and strength. And now we're about to see he gives his personal help. And, and this is a stunning part of this passage as well. Now, groaning is not only evidence of our suffering, but I want you to look at verse 24. The groans can actually be evidence of our hope. Verse 24 says, in this hope we were saved. In this hope that there's a coming liberation, a coming redemption. In this hope that we really have been adopted by God. Paul says, in this hope we were saved. And then gives this little qualifier. We could put parentheses around the next phrase or two. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Or who hopes for what he sees? Some of you parents are on road trips or planning them or just got back from them and little kids can drive you nuts. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Daddy, I don't see Disneyland. Daddy, I don't see Grandma's house. And, and you, I mean, it just about drives you batty sometimes that you're like, we're gonna get there. Trust me. And you know, sometimes in the Christian life, we can get a little impatient with God. Like, hey, you said, you promised glory's coming. How come we're not there yet? And he's saying, listen, if, if you could actually see it at this moment, taste it, touch it, experience it, you wouldn't need to hope anymore. Hope becomes sight. Hope becomes reality. But he has given us a real hope and called us. And then verse 25 says, if we hope for what we do not see, and, and that's the nature of Christian hope. You can't see heaven today. You can't see glory. But we wait for it with patience. There's a powerful promise here. There's a helpful perspective here. And his explanation of glory as a future experience is not only the foundation of our hope, but it's the reason that we wait patiently. Waiting with patience is hard, isn't it? Waiting with patience while you suffer, that's harder. But this is where God comes. Look at verse 26 now with his powerful personal help. You see that little word likewise in verse 26? That is, in, in the same way that our hope creates patience, so the Spirit, or likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness. The Spirit helps our weakness. God didn't just write you a prescription and send you off to the heavenly pharmacy, say, take this and you'll feel better. No, He, by His indwelling presence, enters into your suffering and mind. And he helps powerfully. Now, the first thing he does, as Paul describes it here, is he helps us in our weakness. And what is our weakness? Well, he explains it very simply and directly. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's often the nature of suffering. Lord, I don't even know how to ask you. Like, I, 
I, I know I'm sick or my loved one is sick and I, I'm praying for healing, yet at the same time, maybe that's not your plan. I remember when my mom was diagnosed with melanoma and that is an aggressive, deadly cancer. And of course, early on through the months of treatment and you know, the doctors were giving us hope and we're praying, you know, Lord, heal, heal mom, heal her, strengthen her, you know, bring her back from this. And, and then we reach that crossroads where you can't go back. And I remember processing all kinds of emotions and really frankly, uh, part of me was angry with my mom because I felt like she had given up months before, you know, and you kind of want to hit the rewind button and say, you should have and why didn't you and how come? And, and that was unfair. I had to just work that out with Jesus. But then to watch her faith, even in those last months, as she eagerly anticipated glory, that changed my prayers. And conversations that we had, even in those last weeks before, thankfully, she did not have to go under that heavy medication of morphine and such where she was unconscious, but that was the last couple of weeks. But there, there were some powerful moments with her, and one that I treasure to this moment, which was such a powerful lesson for this very kind of active hope and faith and seeing the indwelling spirit come alongside her and help her and even help our family to know how to pray, to be really specific, but we were... I, I was in her hospital room, uh, seated next to her, and I was actually holding her hand. And we, had, we were just having like, it wasn't really like deep conversation, but the thought occurred to me at that moment, like because of what, how we could see this tracking, that very shortly the hand I was holding would touch Jesus himself. Not that actual hand, because that was buried with her. Like, I get it. Some of you would be like, well, you know, she didn't have a body in heaven and will the rest, yeah, yeah, I get all that but it was overwhelming to my soul. And she noticed that I was crying, she said, why are you crying? And I said, Mom, because very soon, I won't see you, but you will see Jesus. And we both shared an awesome moment of faith. And I was not praying at that point any longer for her healing from cancer. I was praying for the ultimate healing where her spirit and soul, and then eventually when the second resurrection happens and she receives her new glorified body, glory comes. That's the greatest healing anyone could ever experience. But I'm gonna tell you, in, in those months between when we first heard the diagnosis until you know, really even in those last weeks where we, just, we could see God was revealing his will, often we did not know how to pray, but the spirit was present and he was helping and Paul goes on to show how the Spirit helps us. And, and look at the text again. This is astonishing, with groanings too deep for words. And there's been long debate about who's doing the groaning here. Well, I'm absolutely persuaded it's the Spirit. The Spirit actually groans. There's, there's communication here that really is of such a personal and deep nature that there are no words. You ever groaned in that way? I think we all have. You feel something so deeply, so intensely, so painfully that they're, they're, the words are just not adequate and all you can do is, is groan or, or moan. And I'm in awe as I see the God of eternity, the third person of the Trinity, entering into that agony of suffering, that groaning of our soul saying, I know you're confused by suffering. I know that you don't understand exactly how to pray at this moment, but I've got you and I will pray for you. I love a quotation from a 
Bible scholar and author who I believe went to be with the Lord a number of years ago, but he says the Holy Spirit is the intercessor in the theater of our own hearts. And I thought, that is powerful. Because you, you think of theater. It's a place where dramas unfold. I know some of you aren't into the arts and all of that kind of thing, but you know, a stage is where there are comedies that are, are portrayed, and then there are tragedies. But good theater includes high drama. And sometimes we feel like our souls are nothing but a, a, a stage of high drama. The problem is we're not sure what's coming on stage next or what's about to exit. And the Holy Spirit comes and exerts his powerful, personal help interceding. Doesn't mean we we make perfect sense of the drama of our suffering at a given moment, but it means we may entrust all of that to him and and, and know that as he intercedes, as he prays for us, who is he praying to? Well, Paul says, if if you look at the text with me here, it's clear that he's speaking of God our Father. The Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts, that would be God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. It's not even that he knows what is in your mind or your heart, but actually knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you see the perfect and powerful communication, the intertrinitarian communication that's happening at that moment? God the Father, God the Spirit, and you can be certain that because there are other scriptures we could go to that tell us Jesus ever lives to pray for us. So all three persons of the Trinity engaged in in that groaning on your behalf, on my behalf. Those moments of confusion, difficult suffering, the pain is intolerable. We're not sure where this is gonna lead us in the short term. We're struggling by faith to believe we're actually gonna make it to glory. But here is God himself entering into that suffering, the spirit taking up that, the, the groans of our suffering, making them his own as it were, and turning them into these beautiful and powerful prayers to God the Father. Oh, what a God. Tie all that back to the few verses we looked at a couple of, of weeks ago now, where the Spirit, uh, back in verse 15, receiving the adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You think your prayers aren't heard? That's a lie of the devil. That's the deception of, of some alternative worldview. This God, who sent his only begotten Son to die the death you and I deserved and pay the debt of sins, is not about to drop communication on his line, on his end of the line, when his children cry or groan. So, how should you pray? First of all, pray in the hope of glory. Be honest about your pain. God, I don't understand. It hurts me. I even question your goodness right now. This is really difficult. I've never experienced something like this, and I question your love for me, your wisdom. It's okay to pour all that out. The Psalms are full of that kind of praying, but don't lose sight of of the fact that God has also promised you on the other side of this life and suffering is glory, full glory, not three-tiered glory. Can I just insert that? Some of you grew up hearing three levels of heaven. That's not in this Bible. Glory that you and I can't fathom incomparable glory. And then number two, pray knowing that the Spirit helps you. Some of you say, my prayer life is so underdeveloped, I'm embarrassed, like I I don't even like feel comfortable praying in front of other believers. You know what? The greatest consolation is not that you're gonna get better at praying. The, The greatest consolation and perhaps the starting point for you is just to know the Spirit undertakes for you. 
What if I don't say the right words? That's not a problem. What if I don't know how to pray? This is the clear answer for that, right? God's perspective on our suffering is that it's not worth comparing to the coming glory. His hope for us in our suffering is not only that glory is coming, but that the Holy Spirit helps in our sufferings and it's powerful help, it's personal help, it's praying help. So press on, dear believer. It is hard. A lot of it's inexplicable to us right now. There's an old hymn I learned when I was in college and drove 45 minutes south of Greenville, South Carolina, where I lived, into the country to help with a little tiny church. 12 people were there uh, when my older friend and mentor, who was the pastor, and I went. God used his preaching to build it up, but also build up my faith. But a song I learned there uh, was the song, some of you know it, Farther Along. Farther Along, we'll know all about it. Farther Along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. Farther Along, we'll understand why. This truth is glorious sunshine. Let's pray together. Father, it's difficult for us to see farther along and some of the suffering is so intense so painful at this moment that it it not only captures our full attention but it it seems to define our reality our existence but oh lord god help us to see by faith beyond it thank you for the dear holy spirit who undertakes for us thank you spirit of god that even now you are praying on our behalf and where it is needed and and most appropriate it is it is a divine groan Thank you that our suffering is not lost on you, that you are not indifferent to the pain we experience now, but thank you that you've not abandoned us to this moment. And in your kindness, it will all come to an end. And one great day, we will in fact see you face to face. We will take our place in that heavenly city and we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth and perfect minds and perfect bodies. And neither sin nor sickness Death or disease will ever touch us again. For this hope, we give you thanks. Now, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to just ask a, a, a very simple question. But some of you are here today and you've never actually called upon the God of the Bible for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of salvation that he offers to all. Are you sensing that call in your heart this morning? Do you sense that God himself, not Gospel Hope, not Danny Brooks, not your friend or family member you came with, but you, do you have a sense right now that God is calling you, saying, come to me, come, believe? Would you be willing to acknowledge that? Nobody's looking around right now. I'm gonna ask everybody to just keep your heads bowed and eyes closed, but that I might, you and I, just two of us might connect in that way and you say Danny that that does describe something that's going on in my heart I'd like to talk to you more later could I just see your hand I, I promise I will not call you out or embarrass you but I will make a little mental note to try to connect with you and we will second question for those of you who say I I am believing in Jesus Christ but my suffering is so intense I, I really feel a little bit like I've lost my way would you pray for me Danny that I I would re focus believing the word of God his perspective and with Paul saying I too consider that this present suffering cannot be compared with the glory that's coming pray for me that I would live in the power of that truth and not in the overwhelming circumstances that I feel right now anyone who would say 
Yes, please include me in that prayer. Thank you. Yes, many of you. Thank you. Thank you. So Lord, you see each of our hearts. You know the great needs. And my prayer is that you would strengthen our faith to believe all of your promises and give us eyes to see beyond this life into the next that we might live now as you desire us to be and that by your grace we would arrive in your presence as you have promised. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.